Well, we're back for these next four weeks in our five festal garments series in the Old Testament. Thinking about these next two weeks, the book of Esther and the garment of deliverance. The book of Esther drives God's people to celebrate his providence and deliverance, not always through spectacular miracles, but so often through surprising reversals. And we're going to see that as we simply step through each chapter of this book over the next two weeks and see what it unfolds before us. We start in chapter 1 where the book of Esther opens and we're confronted with the questions of power and appearances. As the book of Esther opens, we see this scene of utter extravagance. Our eyes are drawn in to the main character, question mark, of Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire. His rule is enormous, over 127 provinces, it says. His power and glory are unmatched, question mark. It's the Persian Empire. Thinking about geographically, we've got Pakistan and India and Afghanistan and Ethiopia and Sudan and Egypt and Iran and Iraq and on and on This is enormous. Far and away, Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, is the most powerful person in the world at the time. And the picture we're meant to get is, this is the person who is in charge. Question mark. God is not mentioned anywhere in all of the 167 verses of this book. But as a scroll that's meant to be read as God's people and by God's people to know and trust and to live for him, we're meant to see that while God is not mentioned, he is always there. He's constantly in the background and his purposes are being worked out, whether he's mentioned and whether he's seen or not. And so as his people read this narrative, the question is clearly meant to be, who rules? Who's in charge? Who has the power and who will have their way? And verse 4 of chapter 1 sees the contrast given to us even more clearly between Xerxes and God. As the biblical words that should ring in our ears used to describe God are displayed by this king. He is displaying, verse 4 of chapter 1, the vast wealth of his kingdom, the splendour and glory of his majesty. He's clearly being set up as an alternative ruler to God. The scene that then is described is meant to be impressive, it's meant to be extravagant, it's meant to be desirous. The garden and the linen the couches of gold and silver, marble and mother of pearl and costly stones, goblets of gold that are overflowing with wine, that everyone is meant to enjoy, verse 8, without restriction. This is unending riches. It is the pinnacle of worldly splendour and political power. And as inhabitants of the world... We're drawn to these things, aren't we? We're naturally impressed by them. We're we're allured by them in our hearts, especially when by appearances and in comparison from the outside, 
God's kingdom and God's rule seems to be hidden, seems to be unimpressive. And yet our desire to be swept up in the beauty, in the riches, in the glory of the world, as evidenced in the picture of Xerxes and the Persian Empire, it's always given, it's given a, a pretty quick reality check in the book of Esther. Because as is always the case, the ugliness and the foolishness and the depravity of the empire of this world is never far away. And it's put on pretty clear display alongside all the power and wealth and unrestricted indulgence. Because when those things are on display, it never really tends towards the good of the people involved. And so verse 12 of chapter 1, the real impotence of the king is revealed. The most powerful person in the world, he can't even get his own wife, the queen, to come and parade in front of the drunken and gawking eyes of the king's banquet, surprisingly. And so what happens for this most powerful man in the world is that replacing the queen who won't bow to his wishes becomes the advice of his wise men, question mark. And there is a a beauty contest of virgins that's arranged and the women are to be brought into the harem of Susa as an alternative queen is to be found and crowned. And so chapter 1 leaves us with the question, who is in charge? And with the power and the appearances of the empire on view, but also the foolishness and the ugliness and the depravity on view. It's the question of where do you see God at work in his world? And that takes us to chapter 2 and the questions of performance and identity. The king's beauty contest is well underway. It's given even more grimy a picture than you might expect of such a pageant. The young women undergo beauty treatments. That's maybe not surprising in a beauty pageant. But instead of what we would maybe see in a a beauty pageant with a special talent section where uh, the young women might juggle or sing or do balloon animals or something, what's the special section of this beauty pageant? Well, it's the performance in the bedroom with the king. The question of identity and performance is introduced in chapter 2, verse 5, where the storyline raises for us the question of the identity of God's people and where do they fit into this story of the empire of Persia. We know from the rest of the Bible that God's people have been removed from God's place. They were waiting for God's deliverance. They were sent into exile and while some have been, uh, have returned to God's place because Babylon was defeated by the Persians, Many have been scattered and they are still waiting for deliverance. And in that context, we see this in verse 5 of chapter 2. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because he had neither father nor mother. And this young woman, 
who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. And Mordecai had taken, care, taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother di- died. It's, uh, it's striking that they mention, the writer mentions Esther's figure and her physical beauty. It's stark in the biblical narrative. That's a very rare thing for such physical attributes to be noted in that way. But it places Esther as a top contender in the king's beauty contest in his search for a new queen. And shockingly, this Jewish girl wins the king's eye and is made queen, placing her in the position of power and influence over the king. She's won him over with her beauty, but strikingly and shockingly, it also seems that she wins the bedroom competition as well. Mordecai's influence and position is also on view as he thwarts an assassination attempt of the king. And so you've got these influential and noticed Jewish pair of Esther and Mordecai who are in positions of favour and influence. And yet while their identities as belonging to God's covenant people, the Jews, have been revealed to the reader, we're also told in chapter 2 verse 10 that Esther had concealed her identity as one of God's covenant people in order to win the contest, in order to maintain a position of favour and influence with the king. And so the reality is on view that with God's covenant people in the kingdom of the world, exiled strangers on the fringe, despised members of a a far-flung land, they will not win approval, they will not have influence, they will not gain favour without holding back something of their identity, without holding back something of who it is that they serve and whose promises they are trusting. It's interesting as we consider for us, in a few weeks' time we'll be in the letter of 1 Peter in the New Testament and we'll be wrestling with our own identity as exiles and strangers in the world. With all the pull and appeal with all the appearances of greatness and power and wealth and status and success, coupled with the hostility and danger and suffering that regularly comes from identifying with God as one of his people of promise. And it seems Esther is kind of keeping herself away from that suffering and away from that hostility by guarding her identity as one of God's covenant people. And so with the questions of performance and identity in front of us, we see that favour and inclusion in the pursuits of the world don't often align with the identity of God's people. And with Esther being kind of a representative head of God's people in this instance, will she make herself known? Will she trust in the unseen but sovereign providence of God as God's people face the persecution and enmity of the world? Which is a challenge for you and me too. 
will we do the same thing, make ourselves known as God's covenant people, trusting in his unseen providence, even in the face of persecution and enmity. And that persecution and enmity is given sharp focus in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 1, we're introduced to Haman, the Agagite, who will will be called throughout this entire book the enemy of the Jews. He is a representative from the line of Esau, thinking back to Genesis, and we see in him a long-held and generational enmity with God's people of promise. And so we don't have simply here the question of personal or national identity and survival. But it's a question of the covenant that God made with Abraham, remember. And whether that covenant will be cut off and ended. Whether God's promises will be stopped in their tracks and his purposes thwarted through persecution and enmity against his people. That persecution is given focus again in chapter 3 when Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman and Haman's response is not simply wanting to have Mordecai killed but as as verse 13 of chapter 3 says, have a look there, chapter 3 verse 13, dispatches were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all All the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Destroy, kill, annihilate. The threat of God's people is total destruction. And if that's to be avoided, they will need total deliverance. And so with the conclusion of chapter 3, we're left with questions of persecution and enmity. The constant threat of God's people throughout biblical history and even to this day that comes from opposition and hostility to the rule of God in the world. As sinful hearts of people kick against the claim of God on their lives. And the refusal of God's people to worship kings and kingdoms of this world as opposed to God and his presence and his person, well, that regularly and consistently brings persecution and enmity for his people in the world. Deliverance for God's people is needed and it needs to be total deliverance to avoid total annihilation. And chapter 4, that deliverance is given a face. Esther is called upon to mediate for her people, God's covenant people. We need someone to speak on our behalf. Mordecai calls her to plead for mercy before the king, revealing her identity and risking her life. She says as much to Mordecai in chapter 4, verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned by the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 
How will I do this without being killed? Says Esther. Verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family, me, says Mordecai, will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Christopher Ash has written that Mordecai here is preaching the gospel to Esther. Relief and deliverance will definitely come for God's people because his promises are sure and his purposes are unstoppable. I don't know how it will come, Mordecai says, if it's not through you, Esther. I don't know where it will come from. I don't know when it will come, but God will deliver his people. Where will it come from? We know that ultimately it will come from the Lord Jesus who delivers God's people forever. Delivers God's people from the enemies of sin and death and the devil. But the question for Esther is, trusting that God definitely brings deliverance for his people, that he is sovereignly working out his purposes, that his promises are sure and to be trusted, even against, in, in, the, in the face of death and enmity and persecution, is she willing to trust that and to stand up and to not shrink back, but to have faith in God? And as we stop in the middle of this book and see Esther challenged to reveal her identity, to stand with God and his people, to stand in for God and his people, with the king, at great risk and great cost to herself, trusting that deliverance comes and God's people in the kingdom of this world are asked the question, do you stand with God? Even at risk and threat to your own security, comfort and even life. Trusting that identifying with God and his promises and his purposes is where the place of deliverance and relief will come, even against all odds and even despite appearances. We have that challenge and that encouragement in the book of Hebrews that says to this first generation Christians under the threat of great persecution and hardship and conflict and suffering. In Hebrews chapter 10, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those who were in prison. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you, you... knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away the confidence that you had at first. It will be richly rewarded. 
you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he's promised. For God says in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. We do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And so for the challenge of God's people, as they remember Esther, as they put on the garment of deliverance, is that even when God is behind the scenes working out his plans and purposes, he is still working them out. And the place of deliverance and relief for God's people is to stand on his promises. To not shrink back with fear, but to stand firm with faith and be saved. Knowing that deliverance will come because God is in charge. This is his world and he rescues his people even through surprising events and unexpected reversals like Esther the Queen pleading for mercy on behalf of God's people. And we'll return to that next week.